I love teaching through scripture this way. I love exploring the context and sort of the whole of what we're looking at. And understanding scripture like that is really important. And so we've kind of moved through that. And I told you a few weeks ago that we've, we're into this section of Acts, chapters 3 and 4, that are by far my favorite chapters in the whole book. It's actually my favorite picture. It's a 24-hour period, and what we see there is so beautifully complex that it sort of turns culture upside down. It, it juxtaposes culture and the cross, and it's beautifully irreverent, and it's challenging, and it's convicting, and it's a, a picture of what I think the church and really a Christ followers are called to be. The past few weeks we've kind of explored it. We're, we're coming to the end of it, but what we've seen really is this, is that Peter and John were going back to the temple uh, basically to teach. They did all that they knew, which was we're going to do what Jesus did when he was with us, right? So Jesus had been crucified, raised from the dead. He'd made his resurrection appearances, and it had been about 50 days or so. Pentecost had happened. The Holy Spirit has come, and now Peter and John are really living, along with the other apostles, what they knew, which was we'll do what we did when we were with Jesus, <clears throat> And so they would go to the temple and they would teach. And one day they were headed to the temple and as they were walking through the gate, there was a man there who was crippled and he was laying on the ground and he was begging for money. And Peter and John now, having been with Jesus so often, they're beginning to see the world like he did. They're beginning to live like he did. And they see this crippled beggar and they look at him and they say, look, we don't have any money. Silver and gold we don't have. But what we do have, we can give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So get up and walk says that at once the man got up and his ankles were healed and he began to just sort of jump around and he runs straight into the temple, right through the gate where he was never allowed to go before. Remember we talked about the, the connection between a handicap and sin and the thought process there for people was that God was somehow punishing me. And even though that's a foreign concept to us, it was very real. Someone's baby is screaming down there. I love it. It's good. It's part of the experience. Soak it in. And, and so running through the temple gate and, and now praising God and proclaiming. And people come running from all over. They were in the outer courts of the temple where a lot of the teaching happened. And people come running over. And the picture in chapter 3, or right at the beginning of chapter 4, is that Peter is standing there with John. And this now healed, once crippled beggar is draped on them. Right? And the crowd is gathered around. And Peter launches into this sermon. And he begins to speak to the crowd. And as he's speaking... The Sadducees and temple rulers and guards, who we looked at last week, came running up. And they seized them. They grabbed them. And they were furious. And the Bible tells us they were furious because they were, the apostles were teaching, number one, and that they were teaching about Jesus being the resurrection of the dead. And they take them before the Sanhedrin, right? And they put them before this ruling council of 70-ish elders and leaders. And they basically are just confounded. They don't know what to do. These guys have done a great miracle, but they can't have them teaching in the name of Jesus anymore. And so they basically threaten them. And they say, listen, this is a punishable offense, basically by death. You're blasphemy. You can, we can kill you. But they couldn't do that because the people had seen the miracle. They had seen the miracle. So they just order them to never again speak about Jesus. Which, of course, doesn't go over very well with Peter. And he says, listen, here's the deal. I don't really have a choice. Is it right for me to obey God or you? I can't, help talk, I can't help talking about what we've seen and heard. And they released them, right? They let them go. And that's where we left off last week. And really what we asked ourselves the question was, what's the big deal? I mean, what's the problem with the gospel? Right? Why are these leaders so incensed and so angry? And really we phrased the question, what is the cultural problem with the gospel? What we discovered was that what was happening 2,000 years ago was really not all that different from the cultural problem with the gospel today. And I won't go into it, and you can go listen to it online, but really the, the idea was 
that at the core, at its core, the gospel is anti-religious when it comes to our systems that are, we've created, right? Because the gospel is a person, not a religious system. And we talked about the second thing being the gospel is intolerant, right? Because it calls into question our comfortable pluralism when it comes to understanding how, and how people go to heaven and religious ideas. And we really explored those in depth. And it was one of, the favorite, one of my favorite messages I've crafted. It's not going to win a like, preacher of the year contest. It's not real popular. But I'm like three shakes south of cool anyway, so we're fine there. But I find it to be really important because we want to live in a culture, or we want to live in a Christian culture that sort of adapts to the culture around us so that we feel comfortable and we can avoid conflict at all costs. But unfortunately, the gospel at its very core threatens that cultural way of existence. And so we really explored that last week. We're going to pick up this week right in the middle of that sort of, the Sanhedrin, the highest council, has released them, they've threatened them, they've punished them, they've basically said, you can never do this again. Peter and John say, eh, we'll see about that, right? Like, I think we have to. We can't help it. And they release them, and we're going to pick up with what happens next. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 4, verse 20. Let's see. Pick a winner. 23. So before we do that, let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning. We thank you that your word is living and active. God, we thank you that every time we open it, we don't discover you, but you reveal truth to us. And so, God, make that evident in our lives today. Teach our hearts. Let your Holy Spirit come in and instruct our hearts. Teach us. Reveal to us truth. Ask God right where you are this morning just to teach your heart something. Just ask God to teach you, to be the teacher of your soul. Just ask God to speak to you this morning. Take a moment, pray for someone behind you or beside you, in front of you. Ask that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we ask that you would teach us, that you would move in us, that you would open our spiritual eyes to see you and you at work. We turn this time over to you, God, and we ask that you would move deeply in our lives and we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. So the Sanhedrin, the 70 member, 71-ish, depending on where you read, Jewish ruling council has threatened them and now released them. So Peter and John, verse 23, this is where we pick up. On their release, <clears throat> Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had dec decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. 
Now what we see here this morning is actually this incredible moment of beautiful authenticity in the church. All right? And I want to kind of explore it in a couple of categories. Because we see this moment of prayer time, this sort of intentional, really powerful, spontaneously beautiful moment of prayer time. And it, it signals something really important about how the early church worked and what was important to them. And so I want to kind of walk you through some of these things that, that might take a little bit of, of lifting out, but that's really important. And I love this picture. So Peter and John have just been basically set, told that if you do this again, <clears throat> you perform a miracle or you speak in the name of Jesus, we're going to basically arrest you again and have you put to death. I mean, that's essentially what the Sanhedrin is saying. They punish them somehow. They have a bunch of idle threats. We don't really know what those are. They just sort of say them, and then they release them. And Peter and John at once return to their own people. And they tell them everything that's happened. <clears throat> like, you're not going to believe what just happened. We were before the council. Da, da, da. They said this and this and this and this. And they tell them the whole story. And then it says, together in one voice, one accord, they lifted this prayer to the Lord. And they begin to pray. And it's just this really remarkable moment. So a couple things I want you to see, really, about this occasion before we kind of dive into the prayer itself. You've really got to understand the culture of the church. <clears throat> so we come from a very different picture, obviously, than what was happening some 2,000 years ago. So persecution was very real. It was actually just the beginning of these moments that are about to unfold over the next few centuries. But this is the first of about what is to become a movement of persecution among believers. And they were waking up in the reality every day that because I'm a follower of Christ, because I proclaim Jesus as my Lord and Savior, that I am now taking my life into my own hands. I mentioned last week that very few of us will ever stand in a place where our lives are threatened because of our proclamation of Christ. But this was the reality for believers. It's what they woke up with. All right? So persecution was very, very real, and this is the beginning of it. They didn't live in a church culture, right? Second thing is they didn't live in this church culture. You and I, we live in a church culture. In Oklahoma City, whether you feel it or not, whether morally you believe it or not, it's essentially a church culture, right? Culture actually is okay with and engages with us when we go and participate in church activities. In some levels, it even supports it and encourages the faith-based movement, Protestant movement around the city. The ratio of church people to non-church people in our city is incredibly high. Oklahoma City proper has over 1,660 churches in our city limits. It's a very churched culture. Wasn't the case, right? What we've watched in the book of Acts is that starting with about 120, we've gone to 3,000 and up to 5,000 believers, but in the scope of the area, it's a tiny number. Tiny number. And there was no generational Christianity. You weren't a Christian because you were born Christian because your great-grandmother was a member of First Methodist or your dad was an elder at First Presbyterian. You weren't born Christian. There was no one before you. Oftentimes when you gave your life to Christ, you were the first in your family. And that presented its own set of issues and problems. It was not a church culture. The church was together out of necessity. The church was different then. It was, persecution was real. It wasn't a church culture. The church was very different than it is now. I mean, we have these 660 churches with, on every single corner. And they try and meet different needs and different things. But there was another church in those days. They didn't have programs. They didn't have divorce care. They didn't have children's ministry. And they didn't have a, you know, a four-week Bible study from Rick Warren on X, Y, and Z. They didn't have marquees at that little adobe that said, you know, adobe sign outside that said, hey, you're in the desert. Is it hot? Our church is prayer conditioned or whatever. Like, they didn't have any of that stuff. 
They didn't have that. They weren't programmed. They met together literally out of necessity. They shared life. And what we're going to explore next week is they lived with this sense of togetherness. They shared resources. It was incredibly different. And it was a movement of kind of like-minded, new identified people in Christ. So the culture of church was very different. And what we see here too is that there's a really important and powerful thing that unfolds when we see Peter and John returning to their own people. That first line right there, it says, that once they were on the release, Peter and John went to their own people. Now you've got to understand Jewish history to understand why this is so powerful. For the Jewish people, their identity was who they were. Whether they were conquered and scattered multiple times throughout history, they were always Jewish. Religiously, they were Jewish. They were identified physically even by the things that they did to their bodies, if you remember Old Testament law on the man side. They were identified differently. They were identified as Jewish people. It was who they were. They were known as a different people group. And it was a proud movement. And they were God's people. Even when they were conquered and spread out, they were Israelites. And they would return for festivals like the Passover, like what we just saw, Pentecost. They would return for these movements. They were Jewish. Yet, when we see them released from the presence of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jewish people, it says that Peter and John returned to their own people. What Luke is basically saying here is that there is a new identity that happens when Christ captures our hearts. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, our old bloodlines, our old way of lives, our old identity are gone, and we are created absolutely new in Christ, and we have a new identity. And even though Peter and John were standing literally before their own people, they were no longer theirs. They had a new identity in Christ. And so they returned at once to their own people. Now for us, we, this is lost on us, but the significance that you would be a Jewish reader hearing this is powerful. Because no longer are they identified by a bloodline or a history or by a people group. Even though they were standing in the very presence of all these men that they knew, they returned at once to their new people, which weren't just Jewish people. They were Gentile and made up of people that were in and out, and they were different. And the amazing thing is that you and I, as followers of Christ, we are grafted into that new people, that identity. And there's a really significant thing about that that they felt more at home with this brand new group of believers. Remember, this is all new. We're talking weeks old. They felt more at home with that people than with thousands of years of history, with the people that they look like and were raised with. And they returned to their own people. Incredible occasion. What we're also seeing here is this moment of beautiful spontaneity. And don't miss this, because in our church culture, we are so over-programmed and over-produced. But what happens here is that once Peter and John are are seized and taken before the Sanhedrin, the church kind of recoils back to their gathering place. And we know it must have been something they did commonplace because Peter and John knew right where to go when they were released. But they gather back and they pray and wait with expectation because they knew that these two, two men were out in front of, basically for their lives, in front of the Sanhedrin. And when they return, they tell them everything. And it says, together at once they lifted their voices in prayer unison. And it's a beautiful moment of spontaneity. Was it programmed and planned? Our church culture is so produced and so programmed. I've worked in churches where we had to submit announcements that were going to be read by Wednesday so that their content could be approved and they had to be between 35 and 55 seconds 
for the staff to be able to go through them had to be submitted on Wednesday. I've preached in churches where we've gone through pre-production rundowns, timing moments. I've preached in churches where there are red lights that come on in the corners when timings are up, where camera spots are on the edges and you can't go outside the boundaries and there's nothing that can happen outside that pre-production rundown and smoke machines and all these kind of things. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but what I'm saying is there's no room for the beautifully spontaneous. When the church gathers and just says, we need to pray together. There's no movement for that. So here come Peter and John, and they meet with us, and at once they just begin to pray together. And there was this sense of togetherness that we'll get to next week. But really this idea of saying, look, you guys were in front of this, but it was all of us. We are together in this thing. So we've got this incredible occasion that's unfolding that, that just sort of gets glossed over by most of us in one sentence. But it's this cultural shift, this identity change, this togetherness that says we are living in the right now. And the thing that's so beautiful about that is that most of us don't have room for this stuff in our own life, much less our church life. And the sad reality is that I can say that sentence and it doesn't bother most of us. That we have our own life. And we have a church life. Early church didn't have that. They just had life. It was poured together. There were no boundaries. It was blurry and raw and real. And we have our lives so compartmentalized that I have my church life and the things I do with church. I have my school life and my work life. I've got my home life. And very seldom those boundaries ever cross. We don't have time for the spontaneous we panic when something new pops on our schedule when your kids come home and say, by the way, I've got to have 40 cupcakes by tomorrow. Boom, the world blows up. <laughs> we don't have room. Church is about living together in this beautifully spontaneous. It says, hey, when you have chaos, like, I am with you. When tragedy strikes, I am standing with you. Like, we have room for that. When you show up on a Sunday and life is a mess, like, we want to be a part of that. And we want to share in your victories and triumphs, all those kind of things. So we've got this incredible moment. It's really the sort of occasion of this prayer. But then they go on, and you get this prayer that they offer together. So they, they kind of come back, they report on, and verse 24 says, When they heard this, all the story, right? When they raised their voices together in prayer. So here they are. And we don't know really how many there are. We know that there's 5,000 believers, but we're pretty sure they're not all gathered wherever that is. Maybe it's just sort of that core group or whatever. But they, they begin to pray together to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit to the mouth of your servant, David. Now, there's some really important things, attributes of God, right, that are kind of lifted up that I want to pay attention to in this prayer. So together, they kind of, see, you see the three that are there, right? They call, they can say, God, you are sovereign Lord, right? You are creator. You made the heavens and the sea and everything in them, right? And you spoke to David. You revealed truth. We've got a picture that God is sovereign ruler, that God is creator, and that God is revealer. And those attributes are really, really important for the situation, but they're probably more important for you and I to grasp. What the early church is essentially saying at first is that, God, you are sovereign. They don't address God as God the Father. They don't even pray to Jesus. They basically say, Sovereign Lord. Now, the idea of the sovereignty of God is something that I've talked about a lot, so I'm not going to go into depth in it here, but the, the principle there at play is this, that God is in absolute control, total control of all things. And that God moves in all things to orchestrate his will. And not only does God have the right and authority to govern all things, but he always does so without exception. God is in absolute 
and total control. And this is really important because the early church is facing death. They're facing trial. They are living in the reality basis saying, God, I have got to claim and know that you are bigger than these threats. That you are orchestrating and moving even in these moments that seem so perilous and dangerous. You are sovereign, Lord. In other words, you are bigger than the highest ruling council that man can make. So even the Sanhedrin, who are powerful religious people with all their robes and education and all the things that they do and the power that they wield, God, you are bigger than that. And that you orchestrate their movements and that you are in control of all things. You are sovereign, Lord. It was as much a proclamation as it was a reminder. And they go on to say, God, not only are you sovereign, but you are creator. Right? You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. God is creator. Period. Read scripture. It just says it. Now, we don't have to get into the nuances right now of what that means, whether you believe in a seven-day, 24-hour literal creation, or whether you believe in some kind of other mysterious or movement of God. But one thing is certain, God is creator. Scripture makes no argument with it. That he made the earth and the stars and the trees and he made the sea and every creature in them. The actual word that works best there is a Latin word called fiat. It means that God, through a divine fiat, spoke into life all of creation. The word fiat is an authoritative divine command. The earth was created by the spoken word of God. In whatever form you want to believe that happened in, God spoke it and it came to be. Theologians refer to this as the fiat of God. In other words, the spoken decree that God can bring life with his words, with his breath. And that's what these guys are saying. Girls, they gather together and they say, God, through your spoken word word through your breath through your fiat through your decree your command all life comes to be basically saying that this this ruling council that has the power of life and death really has nothing on you that you spoke life into existence you are creator you created them you created us you created the sea the creatures in the sea the heavens the earth everything is by you and for you through your command. So whatever these people do to us, it's nothing compared to your power. You are creator. So together they're saying, God, you are sovereign. You are creator. Right? And then they go on to say, basically, God, you are revealer. So listen, it says, you made the heavens and the earth, everything. You spoke, verse 25, by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your servant, David. And they go on to quote Psalm 2. You spoke the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. I've mentioned this before too, but God is revealer of truth. This is a really important theological concept to understand. We don't discover God. God is not the result of our mental journey, or our longings, or our sort of reading through books and things, and we sort of find our way to religious truth. The reality is Scripture teaches us that God is revealer of all things. God cannot be discovered God demonstrates himself to humanity. He extends the invitation. It is God's revelation of truth. Most of us are on quests for something that we will never find. God reveals things to humanity. God is ultimately unknowable outside of him giving us himself. This is incredibly important because what it means is that whatever you're looking for, you will never find. 
Whatever you are searching for, you will never discover. Because God, at the end of this journey, is not something like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that we stumble across. I think I've mentioned this story before. At seminary, I had a, a philosophical theology professor. Real smart guy. And I uh, had a lot of degrees, and, and he had studied all the greatest minds. One of the things he said in our class one time, I'm not even sure he was, you know, I don't buy most of what he said. But one of the things he said to me that struck home so deeply was he said this. He said, listen. For 25 years, I've studied the greatest minds on earth. I've read everything that they've written. I've studied sociology and psychology and theology up and down. I've got a PhD, and I'm finishing up a second one. And here's the one thing that I know. God is real, right? God is real, and that my rational mind didn't land on that. And his point basically was this. Through all the study of humanity and all the writings and all these kind of things that the greatest minds that humanity has ever produced— what I've realized in the middle of all that is that God is real, and I didn't learn that through them. God showed me that. God allowed me to know that he was real. God is revealer of truth. And they go into Psalm 2. This is what, what they, they kind of pray together. They pray scripture, right? They pray scripture to the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that foreshadows and prophecies about the coming Messiah, right? And as they're gathered together, they recognize immediately as they're praying that, that God is, he's revealing this to David. Because God is the revealer of truth and he revealed these words to David hundreds of years before. That these words were about the moment they were standing in, right? And this is how they explain it. That Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people, which really is translated better as tribes. So they met together with the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and the tribes of Israel, the peoples of Israel, in the city to conspire against Jesus, right, the anointed one, right? And they did it, they did what your power had decided beforehand should happen. So basically what they're saying is like, this psalm is saying exactly what we're standing in, Lord. We should be able to trust you. That Pontius Pilate are the kings of the world, right, and they conspired against the Holy One. And that the Gentiles are the peoples and the, and the Israelites are the tribes. And they have conspired together, right? The Gentiles and the Jewish people conspired together against the anointed one. This is exactly what you said would happen. And we're standing in the middle of it. And you know what that revelation led them to? Look at verse 28. This is really important. This revelation led them to this. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The cross, Calvary, was not an accident, right? It wasn't that God was kind of reeling back that they had just murdered his son. God had orchestrated all of this movement because of his deep love for you and for me and for humanity. God is the author of the cross. Pontius Pilate, Herod, even the cries of the Jewish people didn't crucify Jesus. God handed him over according to what he had done and set forth in advance. To rescue and redeem humanity. It was God's initiative. This is really important because the hands of people cannot put into place, right? Something that God is not in charge and have power over. But they said, God, this happened because you said it would. Because it was part of your plan. So why in the world should we be afraid? Like you set all this in motion. And even though our hearts grieve that Jesus was crucified... We look back now and we say, you are orchestrating something incredible. God is the author of the cross and of Calvary. 
It was no accident by which man crucified Jesus and then God had to overcome. God handed Jesus over in his infinite, amazing, sovereign will because he loves you and he loves me. We've got this content of his prayer, sovereign Lord, creator God, revealer of truth, who in his perfect, divine, sovereign will gave his son Jesus to be the remedy for our sinful life. Verse 29, this is what they begin to pray for. So what's the request of the prayer? Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hands and heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders in the name of your son Jesus. So here's what they pray. They say, God, so all of that to say, we claim all these things in the name of Jesus. And here's what we ask for, right? Hear us. Give us boldness to speak and proclaim and do miraculous wonders and signs in the name of Jesus. Now, I find this prayer amazing because I've never prayed this. I literally have never prayed this. Because what I pray is, God, make the persecution go away. God, Please give us favor with the Sanhedrin so that they won't threaten us anymore. God, please take the pressure off of me. God, please don't let me walk into these difficult situations. Make this easy for me. They don't pray that not once. They just say, God, give us boldness in the moment. They didn't ask for God to relieve them, to make life easy for them. What they prayed for was that God would enable them with boldness to stand in the middle of difficulty... And honor him. God, hear us, give us boldness, and do something amazing. And what they asked for was that God would do exactly what culture told them not to. Because, God, I know my heart. My leaning is to bow to culture. <laughs> Basically, leave Jerusalem for a little while till all the difficulties pass and then come back. I mean, after all, I've got a wife and kids to worry about. That's my heartbeat. Until things get less difficult, let it blow over. Bow to culture. And they pray the opposite. They say, God, just give us boldness to speak truth and do miraculous things in your name. I don't know what you pray for. I certainly don't pray for that. I might lift up a little bit of that after all those other things don't seem to happen. Right? So God, if you're just gonna, it's going to be this hard, well then just let me get through it. Man, get me through this. That's not what they're praying at all. They're basically saying, make me in the middle of all this an instrument of your find that remarkable simply because I'm so weak. Stretch out your hand, heal and perform miraculous signs. Let us do what culture says never do again. And then finally, what's the result of this prayer? After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. What basically happens here is that God hears them. He shakes the very foundation of the ground, basically saying, Listen, I'm going to show you a little bit of the power that you are asking for. I'm going to shake the ground underneath the feet of your enemies. And he fills them with the Holy Spirit, just like we have seen happen the past few times. And they begin to speak boldly, meaning that these ordinary men and women, right, who are just gathered together with no exceptional training or education or no great evangelistic tools or any of those kind of things, were filled with the Holy Spirit and God empowered them to speak boldly. In other words, he said, Here's who I am. And he answered their prayer by showing a demonstration of his power and enabled them to speak. And things change for the church from this moment on. It just changes. It's the hinge moment in all of this. 
where the church in its fledgling movement decides to say, Jesus, we want what you want. And together, united together, we're going to change the way that we think and pray, and we're going to basically say, we want what you want. This was not the way the Israelite people were. If you read the Old Testament, they scattered at difficulty. God was empty, or God could, they couldn't find God, and their, their threats became idle, and they just took off for the hills. It even happened to that little gathering of disciples as Jesus was arrested. They bolted. We're seeing a different movement in identity in the church. So it started me thinking, really, and I'll wrap up by saying this. What are, what are we really about? I mean, as a church, honestly. What, are, what is our prayer life really about? What do we desire? What is not just our little particular church, maybe the church in general? Growth, size, more services. What are we really, really about? Do we ever really pray that God would allow us to do what culture tells us we can't, which is love people that aren't lovable, exist in a different way, walk up to your neighbor or your coworker and just say, I'd like to know your heart? Do we pray together for each other's challenges, struggles, difficulties? Are we vulnerable? If you were to get arrested, is this the first place you'd run to? No way. We hide our stuff from our Christian culture friends. It's the last place we go, right? I'm in the middle of all that fear, too. We'll all live that way. Peter and John, they went to their own people. And their people didn't be like, I can't believe you did that. They just prayed for them. I want it to define who we are. I don't know how to do it, but I long for it. Maybe together but it begins by doing things in common, with a common heartbeat. And really what we celebrate once a month as we celebrate communion is that same common heartbeat. It's saying, God, together we share this because you did this for us, and this is our common proclamation. And this table really is that expression. It's that expression of a common kind of meal where we, we draw together and we basically say, God, this is all of us coming to you corporately together to say, you did this for us, and we proclaim it. And we live it. Some 60, 70 days earlier than the story we read today, 